my flaw is that I love uh, eating oranges way too much or something. Hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, episode 26. In this episode, we are talking about Ian Banks' The Wasp Factory. I am Ryan, and with me is my good buddy and fellow host, Jacob. Yes, hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, our little book club, book cult, book something or other. Episode 26. Before we get into this episode, though, I got to pick a bone with you and me. Uh, okay. Because as is tradition, when I have a relatively slow week, I like to go back and listen to old podcasts because, I don't know, it's it's, it's interesting. You know, sometimes I forget when I'm recording like little bits of uh, conversation that we have, yeah, right? Unless sure. you go back and listen uh-huh. to it. And uh-huh. so, you know, I paid I paid a listen to a good deal of our older podcast. And I remember uh-huh. on our beloved one, yes. we made the incorrect assessment that Toni Morrison was our only Nobel Prize literature winner or that she was even our first that uh, we had read. Who did we miss? A lot. Herman Hesse, Ernest Hemingway, oh. William Faulkner, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So apologies to all of those dead guys. Wait, is Gabriel Garcia Marquez? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Apologies to all of those uh, those dead guys because they also won Nobel Prizes in literature and we just completely forgot about them. Wow. So picking I mean, a bone. I, I'm so we're gonna have to hang it up because yeah, I went it. that's our first ever like fact check fail. Snopes is on our ass now, so I doubt it. Probably but. not. But anyway, that's just you know, yeah. yeah, it is what it is. We make mistakes, mostly you, but Mo- I do I, sometimes, yeah, too, as well. So, but yes, welcome to episode twenty-six. This is going to be a weird episode, or this will be a normal episode, but it's a weird book. Yes, and I know that we uh, previously were excited because you know the assumption coming into this book, I thought it was sci-fi. Uh, nope. <laughs> Not quite exactly. Uh, uh, I disagree. I think there are science fiction elements, and technically, it is sci-fi in psychological fiction. It's oh, so we're PSY. It's no, it's no, it's no more sci-fi than Underground Railroad. So I guess yeah, that is just loosely for everything. But yes, a pretty pretty normal episode. We're going to talk about the book. Uh, we're going to delve into it. I'm sure we have some questions. Yes. And, uh, well, bef- before that, we're going to tell you about the author, give you a brief summary. This is our first return to a previous author that we're doing, so it'll be yes. interesting. Maybe a little bit less about Banks and more just getting into the book. But yeah. And then, of course, at the end, we're going to have our patented three-tier, four if we're getting rid of it, five if a dog bites it off, but not really because it, it wasn't bitten off in the first place. Right, there was nothing to bite six off. Six if we put it on an old mortar shell and, and hit it with a hammer. But uh, I don't think we're going to get there today. But yes. No. Super excited. Very, very fun episode coming up. Yes. And uh, this is the point in the uh, intro where I say that if you haven't read the book, go read the book because it's weird listening to a podcast about a book you haven't read unless you're just really into podcasts and not so into books. And then, I don't know, maybe you're listening to the wrong podcast. Uh, but at any rate, interesting book. Go pick it up. It's pretty cheap. Um, and... Uh, widely available on Kindle and all that kind of stuff. A little bit harder to get your hands on a on a physical copy, but uh, not impossible. Yeah, I think this one actually, we got physical copies I ordered off of Amazon. I think these actually had to come from uh, the UK. I don't yeah. think that these were actually shipped from the US. Well, that's nice. It is nice. A little interesting. We have a little piece of Europe. Mm, it smells like Europe. If Europe smells like pages. 
Um, mm. it doesn't. Really. It doesn't. Okay, it just, cool. A little bit more musky. It's been. It's a little bit more lived in. Yeah. I don't know. You're the explorer over here. You tell me. I don't. I don't think Europe has like a, a general smell. I don't think Earth has a general smell. Or maybe you've just gone nose blind to it from all uh, your time over there. That's that's true. I that could is be, true. I could be nose blind to it. Maybe all it right. smells like a dog. Let's. <laughs> Lord. Let's talk about Ian Banks. Speaking of dogs. Let's do it. Uh, all right, so Ian Banks, we, we did a previous episode um, on Espadare Street and talked about him uh, a bit more than, than I will today, but just sort of as a refresher, if you did not listen to that episode, uh, he was a Scottish writer. Uh, he was born in 1954 in uh, Dunfermline. Dunferm- I did this last time. Actually, last time I tried to say it correctly the Scottish way. Um, anyway, in Fife, it's like one of the oldest cities I was reading this morning. It's one of the oldest cities that dates, uh, back to, uh, the Neolithic era era. And, uh, I thought that was, that was kind of interesting. Anyway, uh, he writes, you know, just fiction under the name of Ian Banks. He does his sci-fi writing or did his sci-fi writing under the Ian M. Banks, uh, name. And then he also had a couple of random other uh, pen names, too, for some of his other projects um, that I don't have in front of me. But he was uh, he was kind of all over the place, known really for his his sci fi stuff. Yeah. Um, and this was uh, his first book. Um, I do believe this came out in 1984. Yeah. And uh, so this predates both of us. It does. Um, and you get kind of an 80s feel definitely in this uh in this book, like a seventies, eighties. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Kind of vibe. But, um, yeah, I mean, he was, he was a prolific, uh, guy. He was involved in, uh, in a lot of like humanist movements, the, uh, Scottish independence referendum. He was a big proponent of that. Um, and he died, uh, in June of 2013. Unfortunately, it wasn't to a snake in a leg. Uh, and it was a kite, I think it was was a kite. No, it was, uh, it was cancer. Uh, so unfortunately not, what an even bigger bummer, not, not an interesting way, uh, not an interesting way to go for him. Um, you have the responsibility of a book summary and I understand you didn't do your homework this week. No, see I did, but I found in my, in my course of just trolling around on the internet, I found a perfect summary. Okay. And in my mind, if I were to try to create one from scratch based on my own thoughts and feelings, I would always feel, I don't know, not quite as accomplished as what was already put down pen to paper to summarize this book. Okay. And this so, is courtesy of uh, of TV Tropes, one of my favorite websites okay. that I go to regularly. I don't know why I was never on heard there of for this book, but uh, it was fantastic. So The Wasp Factory, all right? Mm-hmm. It tells the story of Frank, your average 16-year-old murderous sociopath who lives with his highly secretive father on an isolated island in northeast Scotland. Frank's daily routine consists of disturbing shamanistic rituals, which include brutal animal sacrifice that he believes give him control over the island. In addition to this, he's also murdered three members of his family. Yeah, that pretty much nails it. It's pretty um, good. It's pretty I want to. I want to read something uh, in in summary, and, and it's kind of cheating too because it comes from the back of the book. But I think this says a lot about Banks as as a writer. Um, and uh, and his sort of view of criticism. So first of all, um, this book uh, they did. I, I forget it was uh, BBC or somebody somebody big uh, in the UK did 
uh, survey and uh, and people um, said this was, you know, one of the top like 100 books and the independent actually has on the back cover one of the top 100 novels of the century, uh, which is which is interesting. And Banks himself uh, was listed as one of the most um, important uh, important writers post like uh, 1943 or something like that. Um, so, you know, normally books, you know, either in, inside the jacket or on, on the back have like, you know, critic comments, you know, sure. things from newspapers, mostly and positive. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to read these in sort of a descending order, if you will. Uh, so the New York times calls this brilliant, irresistible, compelling, uh, the mail on Sunday, which I don't know what that is. Uh, Probably a UK publication. I would assume so. Uh, says a mighty imagination has arrived on the scene. Uh, the Financial Times says this is a macabre, bizarre, and impossible to put down. Um, then you have Punch. Says the Wasp Factory is the first novel, not only of a tremendous of tremendous promise, but also of achievement, a minor masterpiece, perhaps. Then you have the Scotsman. There's nothing to force you, having been warned, to read it, nor do I recommend it. The Times Literary Supplement uh, says a literary equivalent of the nastiest brand of juvenile delinquency. The Daily Express, read it if you dare. And the London Times says simply rubbish. Yeah, I appreciate kind of the fair representation on uh, critical reception on the back of this book. That was one of the things, too. You know, whenever you get a new book, you either look, you know, on the inside jacket or the back just to get a little brief info maybe about it. And I, I too, thought that that was a little bit interesting and kind of a a, a more sort of funny and self-deprecating way to approach uh, putting out that sort of critical response to your work. You know, I, so maybe we can use this as a as a segue into our discussion over the actual book itself. But I was reading um, on The Guardian... Uh, back in 2013, I believe. No, sorry, he was he died in 2013. Yeah, this was 2008. Um, he did just a, a write up on kind of this this book and and his thoughts coming into it. And so I'll just kind of summarize bits and pieces. He had written some science fiction novels beforehand that had gotten rejected from a bunch of publishers and uh, whatever. So. He basically, um, he says at one point that that he um, tried to sort of pare down his like science fiction like world building into this you know much smaller set and you know sort of uh, made the illusion to like um, you know just be creating art in like miniature like you know figurines like painting yeah. with you know pens and and that sort of stuff much more precise. So I, I think that uh, it's it's interesting when you think about it in those terms. Um, even though we haven't read any of his science fiction proper, but you know we we have read some science fiction before, and you do get like a very vast array of kind of world building. But you also get that sort of element in this book um, about uh, all of that. And one thing he says at the very end that I, th I think is really interesting, and I'm going to read this this directly. Um, he says that uh, I was also trying to make the point that childhood innocence isn't and wasn't as most people seem to imagine it. Children probably harbor quite as many violent thoughts as adults. They just uh, don't usually process a sophisticated moral framework. I'm sorry. They don't possess a sophisticated moral framework within which to place them. Uh, not come to think of it that all adults do either. So, you know, he's he's very aware of the 
what he's done in this book, um, you know, as far as like the grotesque nature of, of some of this stuff and, yeah. you know, obviously was, was intentional. Um, so where do you want to start with this one? I want to, let's just go ahead and start at the end. I want to start with the twist. Okay. Because I feel like, I don't know. I feel like there is something to be said about that because it sort of makes you go back. Did you, did you feel the need to go back at all and sort of reassess some of the things that happened previously, like yes. after knowing the twist, like yes. what? Uh, so I just, I just kind of, I ruminated on the, the thought that you know maybe like the hormones and all of that kind of stuff, um, you know, were maybe at fault for some of his, some of his actions, and I found myself sort of justifying or her. I don't even know how to how to address um, Frank or Francis, so I'll just call him him. Um, because that's how we, that's we how know, he is most we of the know book. him. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I sort of found myself kind of thinking through like his, his actions and wondering if, if some of those weren't rooted in sort of his dad's, you know, like sabotage of, of his like genetic makeup, basically. Well, not even that, but just like the sabotage, I guess, like philosophically, like with his worldview, I guess on, on yeah. women and, and kind of reconciling that with who you, you know, are and, and, yeah. and how much your influence because of this incident, because of kind of your father's use. Yeah, it was, I don't know, it was interesting. It seemed to me, and this book was written in 1984, and, you know, I know that we've kind of had, you know, transgender, not that this is necessarily like a heavy sort of transgender book, but obviously we get kind of that, that like sort of view of it there at the end. And it, yeah. it I don't know. It was interesting to me the, I guess the degree with which kind of this stuff was sort of covered in there with sort of uh, male and female identity and just mm-hmm. kind of what their roles are and, and how Frank sort of viewed that within himself and kind of his own sort of balancing even with, with sort of the, the, the third death or the, his, his third murder and kind yeah. of balancing that aspect, the sort of like duality that, um, that existed there and you know it it seems it seems like this book would be good for a reread because of that agreed, agreed. um well also it's short you know it's only 184 pages and you know the writing style is relatively enjoyable if you like dark humor because there were some elements of that especially with the the murders as macabre as that is to yeah, say yeah. you know murders of small children can have instances of dark humor in it but yeah, I don't know. I I went back a little bit. I didn't like fully reread things, but it just really made me think about kind of the the view that this sort of like isolated level of of not masculinity, but this like isolated level of of manhood has kind of led to this like weird sort of obscure and um just like hyper crazy sort of degree of like that like viewpoint of masculinity, it's like, yeah, they're good at killing and women are good at, you know, making babies. And so that sort of shapes a lot of like what Frank does the entire time that he's on this island. It's just kind of, I don't know. It was interesting. Yeah. And, but on the other hand too, I I got this, the same impression from when we read um, Barnes, the sense of the uh, sense of an ending. Yeah. Um, when you sort of had uh, a revelation at the end of that book as well that that also skewed then your perspective of all the previous events 
And, you know, I remember getting to the end of that and thinking sort of the same thing. Well, shit, now I need to to reread this with, like, all the relevant information and reassess some of the characters yeah. and, you know, and my thoughts about them, you know, throughout now that I have this this bit of information. But the thing that, that I, I found a little bit troubling about the the way that this ended is that, and, and part of this is probably sort of a... Uh, a, a product of the times that we are in right now yeah. in, in 2019, you know, with, with all these conversations around gender, gender identity sure. and, and all of that kind of stuff is that you, at you know, in the last, what, five, 10 pages of the book, you introduce this like massive thing that is a huge conversation. And, um, it just it seems to throw uh, an unnecessary wrench into things, and it's such a serious topic um, that you know you almost sort of do have to go back and and reassess everything yeah. in in that lens because not doing so you know really I think gives you an incomplete picture of of Frank and and his his family relationships and stuff. So I actually got to the end and I and I read that and I was actually a little bit pissed off if I'm if I'm honest because I was like, well, you know, you have this great study in sort of psychology yeah. and like, you know, family relations. Why why is his dad letting him, you know, run rampant and build bombs and, you know, do all this kind of stuff? How could he be basically undocumented and and all of this kind of stuff? And you have that whole like situation to assess the There's entire a, time, and then yeah. you're like, "By the way, oh, here's he's how it ties. It literally ties everything up. It's yeah. like this one. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the things too. Is you do have the yeah. There's a, a whole lot of ambiguity with sort of that situation and why Frank is given that degree of autonomy to do sort of the things that he does outside of being able to go into the one room and his house. Well, yeah. I guess two with the the bomb material, but yeah, I don't know. It it was a little bit. It was a little bit frustrating that it, it it was kind of like just dropped on you there at the end. Yeah. In 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 I know that you kind of related it to the uh, to sense of an ending where we kind of get another like sort of little drop on us there very close to the end, and it's like you kind of get like a nice sort of tied off neat story, but it makes it feel a little bit less satisfying because of that. Right. Um. But yeah, I you know this. It's in some ways this book was really hard for me to 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 relate to a lot of other things because one of the things I guess now that I've just done out of habit because we're 25 now 26 episodes deep is I'm constantly finding bits and pieces in my memory from other books that I've read to try to like relate and to try to just like get a I don't know get a better perspective whether mm-hmm. it's writing style whether it's sort of plot development characters or anything like that and this was a very difficult book for me to try to like pull anything separate in my mind to kind of like give an additional frame of reference like this book really is an oddity and I don't know why exactly that was I mean obviously the subject matter within the book is I what else have we read maybe Blood Meridian if we're talking about sort of you know yeah like brutality or, or things like of that nature sure. but there weren't a whole lot of like little nuggets for me to to kind of pull from. And it made for sort of an interesting reading experience for me because it's been a while since I've read a book kind of in a vacuum. Yeah. Without any sort of outside thoughts or or notions or anything like that. Like how did you how did you feel reading this book? And is that even something that you kind of approach in the same way with reading things not necessarily in a vacuum or 
I mean, I, I think I, I think I've said it before. You know, I like to I like to approach books for the most part with you know no preconceived notions about what they're about. That's why sometimes when I pick books that I haven't read before, I intentionally don't read about them beforehand because. No. You know, I want that like discovery process. Like that's just that's how I like to read. Um, but yeah, I I, th- I think it is. I found myself in in this book, and I'm trying to think of another one that that I could relate it to. And I, I struggle to think of anything where um, I I don't really know why I was motivated to read, other than you know it's it is sort of just this like grotesque curiosity about like where is this all going yeah and i mean to be fair that is kind of the the driving force of this because there's not a lot of i don't know this is less like a a linear plot or this is less of like a you know a lot of things are happening it's more so this kind of roundabout psychological because we again we see everything through through frank's eyes you know right we, we get everything through his mind through his perception and a lot of it is recalling sort of the instances that have led us to here or recalling you know the murders or just his own thoughts previously with his mom and and just with everything and so this isn't a book where you're like oh all right we're going and we're moving along you know with the story so yeah there's a lot of the just sort of the weirdness of it the the utter just kind of just gross strangeness of it is like the draw that keeps you kind of going and and the thing about it too is that like there there isn't really like an overarching like plot device that keeps you moving forward i mean eric is eric eric is 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 the like conflict that's rising that you figure all right what's going to happen when eric gets back right but you don't really get the sense that eric is like a force to be reckoned with um and until later in the in the novel, right? Like, I, I mean, we until get, you get backstory on like, yeah. why he was institutionalized, right? Exactly. So you know, it's it's hard to sort of like you know equate the the action in the in the novel. A lot of the stuff that Frank's just doing day to day and observing and and telling us because I I found myself a lot of times thinking like, so what? Why? What? Like, what is this? What is this leading toward? And yeah, you know, you kind of figured that Eric is going to make an appearance at some point. Yeah. Um, but you know, until until like the probably the second to last phone call, you don't really get the sense of sort of like impending dread. Yeah. You know, like Frank's looking forward to seeing Eric, and um, you know, I think if if those conversations or you know, sort of Frank's thoughts on Eric would have been a little bit more. Uh, you know, like fearful, yeah. um, you know, or, or just confusing uh, about whatever, like um, I think that that would have, that would have driven things a little bit more, but yeah, I, this was, this was sort of a weird little like microcosm. And I, the, the way that I, I kept thinking about it in, in my mind is like, you know, Banks creates this, this little Island, right. And Frank is pretty much relegated to the Island, you know, um, because of his documentation status and, you know, uh, and really just his behavior and Eric's yeah. behavior and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, this, this book sort of, to me also just felt like an Island. It, it didn't, wasn't connected to, you know, anything that, that seemed really familiar to me. Um, but it was, it was built in a way that I, you know, I think, you know, I could relate to some of the childhood stuff. Um, yeah. you know, just, I think those are sort of commonalities that we all have. Well, yeah, that was one of the things I wanted to talk to that I, forgot about but that you had mentioned earlier just kind of with the you know with that 
sort of uh, have you heard of have you heard of intrusive thoughts? Um, no, but I could extrapolate what that means. So the gist of it is, and, and you know, it's it's just kind of like a psychological, uh, you know, phenomena, or you know, I don't know the the degree with which it's explained, but the gist of it is, you get sort of intrusive thoughts. They're not something that you've been sort of thinking about or ruminating on. It's something mm-hmm. that seemingly kind of pops into your head. And most of the time they're like, they're just really odd or strange or, you know, you've ever been like walking down, you know, walking in a Walmart or something and you see like parents and a little kid and like, you just get an intrusive thought, like punch that kid. And you're like, where did this thought come from? Why would I do that? Like, but it's just this, I guess this like primordial essence of, of human psychology. And I don't know, it's just an interesting thought because a lot of times you, you know, I don't, I don't know to the extent everyone experiences this, but yeah, occasionally you'll just get like weird random thoughts and you just think like, where did that come from? And sure. like that, what is that? Like, why did I even think that? And, you know, through a lens of an adult, right, you obviously have kind of a, a somewhat of a moral framework established, or at least you understand the idea of a moral framework to establish to not act on those sorts of things. But right, it right. is interesting to think of, you know, in childhood, I don't remember direct instances of it, but you know, you can be seen as more just like impulsive. Like if you see kids and you're like, why are they doing that? Oh, what yeah. is that stupid thing that kids are doing? And it's, you know, I would imagine that that has a, a great deal to do with it, that you have these sorts of like just sort of primordial like thoughts that, that pop in that have nothing to do with your conscience or morality or, or really anything in general. Yeah. And I think I think you get a lot of that with uh, with with Frank running around, right? It's like especially him being so removed from from society, uh, seemingly that you know he just he sort of creates his own sort of social structure, right? Yeah. Um, and it the, really the island is is sort of the the structure that he's he's created for himself, the you know building of dams and cities and then blowing it all up. Um, I thought it was interesting too that like that still like Frank was able to like have a relationship with like Jamie that was that was pretty normal yeah and like why I, I couldn't really sort out in my mind like that was the yeah that was kind of an odd just addition to the story that it, it didn't really I don't know it, it it didn't really felt like it added a whole lot yeah but at the same time it was just kind of I don't know if it was trying to even out Frank is a character I maybe a little was. bit like it, it was like, okay, well we can't just have, I, you know, I don't know if this was something that, that banks like thought about and was just like, all right, well, you know, I kind of have to have some sort of counterplay to this character. Like we're, we're following through this person's eyes. Like they have to be somewhat of a, you know, relatable, like you could, you could relate to, you could relate to some extent with feelings that Frank had, but I yeah. would hope that most people don't relate to like the actions that Frank takes based on those feelings. Right. Um, so just having like another, having some other element of his life or of his existence that I think gives you sort of an anchor of relatability. Like I think it, I think that's what the purpose of it was at least and it, in the story. And I think that that, I don't know, it, it just did kind of feel like a little bit like, Oh, Okay. So he just he's just kind of like normal ish. Yeah, and I think I think you're absolutely right that that was that was the intent, and I do think it was it was a, a conscious decision, you know, by by Banks to do that, and you know, by the same token, I think that the way that he you know uses humor or understatement or 
uh, maybe not understatement so much as like the matter of factness of yeah. the way in which Frank tells us about some of the inc- incidences, especially like the murder stuff, um, helps to to sort of um, you know deaden the actions in a way, and 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 I don't want to say make them acceptable because obviously murder is not acceptable, no. uh, you know, but uh, make them I, I think a little bit less shocking, but also to illustrate that like. Frank op- operates on a higher plane of of that sort of like psychological, you know, spectrum. He is not yeah. just a murderer. Um, there there are other things at play in his mind. You know, evening out the uh, the gender, you know, quality of of his of his murder with uh, yeah. Esmeralda. Right. Um, I mean, there there are there is definitely a higher functioning sociopath. Yeah, he's very seems. he's very egalitarian in yeah. his choices of <laughs> uh, of interesting ways to murder his peers. Yeah. Uh, did you have a favorite murder? I was gonna ask you that question. So I, I stole it. From yeah. Um, only because. Well, you know what? Since I'm answering first, I'm going to take yours because I liked it too. It's, okay. it's got to be the mortar. I just think the whole just absurd background because everything yeah. else, it's kind of just, it happens. You know, it's it's a thought that enters his mind. You know, I'm going to put the snake in the the fake leg. We're going to tie her to the kite and send her out on our way. They, it, it, it seems like it's there's less of like a buildup to what's actually going to happen. Yep. And you get more of that dread like, oh, here's a mortar. It's a bell. And you're like, oh, God. Yeah, this you know where this gonna, is going. I know where this is going, and you have build up to it, and you just it's, I don't know, just in a in sort of a weird dark way. Not that I'm laughing at kids getting blown up by mortars, because God knows that there's plenty of that in the real world that happens. And oh, it's terrible sure. and awful, yeah. but within the confines of this book, just imagining like a six year old kid going and trying to convince, knowing you know, trying to convince their younger brother to go hit a mortar with a piece of wood to. For no good reason, yeah. you know, well, for, again, I, well, I don't think we've said it yet. This is first person, so we're, we're getting we're getting Frank's perspective on it. Yeah. So it seemingly has, you know, no good reason from well, the way that he's, he's telling well, us. Well, his good reason is because of the incident with Saul the dog, and because Paul was born the same day, he right. feels like the essence is still within him, and so he needed to kill him to eliminate that and get some sort of relief. Yeah. Which obviously is no good reason, but at least we give some sort of twisted mental. He's not just out there going, you know what? I want to kill my younger brother. Oh, man. You know what? I just thought of something and I'm, I'm going to go a little bit off the rails here. So, okay. It's fine. Give, we'll reel it back in. So, the, the, the dog attacking and supposedly biting off his genitals and making him the way that, that he was ostensibly didn't happen, right? Or didn't happen in the manner that. Well, I mean, or I imagine the effect. I imagine that the dog, you know, the dog attack did happen, but it didn't it didn't obviously did not remove his genitals. Right. It probably just scarred them and and the, you know, there was an opportunity there for that. But yes, not exactly happening the way that he had So after the revelation that he is in fact a female, do you think that that Frank is suddenly going to start having an identity or not, not an identity crisis, a crisis about then killing Paul because to get retribution on the dog that in fact didn't do anything to him in, in the way that he thought. Cause suddenly now, I mean, it's, it, it the, negates that point. The flip side of that is the dog still was like the opportunity that his or his or her father had to sort of 
fulfill this plan and fulfill this prophecy. So maybe you could look at it the same way that the dog was still played an incredibly important role in like the sort of ill fate the last however many years for yeah. for Frank. So maybe. I don't know. I, I don't think after all of this, that's the thing, you know, at the end, it's kind of, we're just sort of left with, you know, Frank and Eric and it's like, you know, we don't really know exactly the trajectory that this book ends on. Right. It's who knows. Like normally with a, you know, you could say, oh, it's kind of a neat ending in a sense that we get, we get some insight on, on everything that's, that's happened. We get kind of the the background closure with, with uh, the locked room, we get the background closure with Eric being back. So it's like, okay, a lot of the things that are set up as sort of mysteries in this book are tied off at the end. And you would expect things to, to kind of have like a known sort of trajectory or path. What the hell happens after this book is done? Who knows? Yeah. Which is interesting because part of the fun, fun bit of reading is, is thinking about that, right. And and sort of in your mind, sort of picturing, all right, what transpires now? Like, what happens? We're getting way off tangent. We'll get back to the desk here in a bit. I told you I was going to go off. It's fine. But I want to know, what do you think What do you think happens? Like, where does this, where does this story go? Or did you, even, did you even think? Did you put the book down and just go, okay? Or did you take a moment and think about kind of where this is going? Because I know personally, yeah. I put the book down. I went, all right, that was a doozy. Yeah. <laughs> and I have not really thought about all the sort of ramifications ramifications and, and repercussions and everything and, and sort of where these characters go until now. You know, I, I wondered if if Frank was going to kill Eric. And so I felt a little bit let down that there wasn't some closure to that, um, that sort of like attack there at the end, um, that it was just sort of them, you know, sitting on the beach and, you know, Eric sleeping in, in Frank's lap. And you know, then I got to, I, I, yeah, I did think about, to answer your question directly, I did think about like what happens, you know, after the fact, um, you know, how does, how does Frank reconcile with, with his dad or, or does he, there doesn't seem to really be much of a connection there to begin with. And you have to think that the revelation, uh, severs whatever ties, you know, might be there. And, you know, I, I, I think though that it's likely he sticks around just because, the island sort of is his identity, right? And um, it's the only thing that that he's capable of sort of controlling, right? Um, through his or rituals, at least, you know, and, yeah, in his mind controlling his yeah. situation. So you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you know Eric got picked up and went back to the to the loony bin. I mean, how do you set a flock of sheep on fire and and you know nobody nobody knows that that happened? Uh, you know, his dad's obviously you know, not above turning him in. So yeah. uh, he did it once already. So I think Eric goes back to the loony bin. I think Frank ends up sticking around and really not much of, changing. Nothing. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't know what happens, which to, is an interesting thing because yeah, I mean, I guess you would think his sort of mindset on, on men and women or just on kind of his own existence would change some, but the reality of it is, is I don't know if, and, and granted he was what, 16, uh, 17, 17, I think, yeah. I mean, that's a long time to, to, I mean, it's not like a huge long time. Like obviously things change, you know, when Mm -hmm. I was 17, if I stay, if I was now the same mindset and the same everything and thoughts and all of these processes that I was going through when I was 17, like I wouldn't be, you know, 31 now, I would have probably done something stupid, but yeah, just the, the thought about how all that changes, but at the same time, if you're still isolated and nothing changes about your situation and realistically, it's kind of like, there's not a lot that can 
immediately change about your situation. It's mm-hmm. hard to see, yeah, that there's going to be a whole lot going on, which is kind of the the strangest or weirdest thing of all with this book is that after all of this stuff that happens, and even with this sort of twist that we get at the end, realistically, characters go back to doing what they were doing at the beginning of the book. Well, I, I think there is there is one decision that Frank is going to have to make that's been made for him up to this point is, you know, what what does he do about his his gender identity? And, you know, does does he accept, um, you know, his his biological, um, you know, predisposition? Um, does he, you know, continue to take hormones? Because nature is going to take over. If he stops taking hormones, he is going to go through and, and reestablish, I would assume, you know, his his biological identity. Um, you know, if, if all of that stuff stops. So, you know, in effect, becoming becoming a female um, and you know, does, does he embrace that? Does he say that, you know, this is just the hand that I'm dealt. And so, you know, continues along that path with his dad. I mean, I think that to me is the bigger question. And that's, and again, why I got so frustrated with that revelation at the end, because I'm like, Jesus Christ, like that is the biggest thing in this whole book. Like murdering animals, animals, animals is, is a, is a small thing. And, and you is can, it? well, no, 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 I'm How just, you, well, no, hang on, hang on. Right. You can, you can understand the psychological defects because we've seen so much of it in yeah. literature and movies and stuff. Um, to sort of understand what kind of person, I mean, we already have is. the background. He's, you know, he's murdered siblings and cousins, so right? And his but in my treatment mind, of animals and stuff is not surprising, right? So, in my mind, the bigger thing to try to gr- to grapple with is really the the whole gender identity thing, uh, and at least after the the book ends, yeah. In, in my mind, that's fair. So, uh, I don't really know how to get us back on course. So let's just let's I guess, get back on course. Of the murders. three death, of the three murders, so I think it was the mortar, and I think you're going to say the mortar as well. Uh, yeah. So I thought, what's your second favorite I thought, then? Because uh, I'm assuming you liked it all for the same reasons that, I, well, not that we liked it, but again, we're saying from a an interesting and kind of macabre standpoint, I thought it was the most interesting. Yeah, I think the uh, I think the kite thing is is second, um, just because you know it took some level of like you know planning on you know how to functionally make a kite big enough for this to happen how you know to to set esmeralda up to basically get tangled up in the uh in the guidelines yeah um and then you know for her just to to skitter off you know over the sea um and you know supposedly nobody knows you know what what happened to her um so there's there is some some humor, I think. I in, forget the exact wording of it, but I my favorite little bit about that was where he was like, "Oh, well, she had died and become sort of the skeletal pirate of this kite somewhere." Yeah, you know, in the skies or in the sea. Yeah. Well, and then made it made a joke about like maybe she made it across the channel or something, and like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I just the the whole murders thing alarmed me. But Blythe is third then with the boot. Yeah, just because, like, you know, I, I thought of Toy Story. Oh, there's a snake in my boot. <laughs> I did. You know, it did have that moment of, of just kind of like, well, yeah. yeah I mean, uh, all right. Also, I don't think that there are, my recollection anyway, is that there are no poisonous snakes um, on uh, on the islands. That are native to yeah. the Scottish Isles. So I, 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 could be, I could be wrong in that, but... Um, that that is my that is my recollection. So I found that a little bit. So you're questioning. I am. Should Ian sh- Banks's own 
I, cursory I knowledge of his homeland to your smartassery yeah. American uh, determination to Google things. Yeah, well, let's, let's Google it. That's the power of the internet. Let's Google right? it. Poisonous um, things. Well, while you do that, we can talk a little bit about... Uh, no, the adder is the only venomous snake native to the UK. Well, there you go. So okay. you're completely wrong. I'm wrong. So you owe, you owe Mr. Banks an apology. Well, for questioning him. If he's listening in the afterlife, I'm I'm we're so sorry because we're just not good at this. But um after the murders, obviously that's kind of the the weirdest thing to sort of comprehend with this book. And then we get into the treatment of animals. And I know yeah. that this is a soft spot maybe for for readers. Again, I've I've kind of gone on record in the past that things that I read don't really shock me. Things that are grotesque, things that are you know, immoral or just violent or anything like that. It doesn't really shock me. I'm not a very, like, uh, I'm not affected by reading things that much. I'm more of a visual guy. Like, if I'm yeah. watching a movie and it's it's in that same vein, that's that has a lot more of an impact on me. Sure. How did you feel about all that within the confines of this book? You know, I, I think same same sort of thing. I, I do feel like, like I'm a little bit desensitized to the, like, the brain image, like um, the yeah. imagination of, of those things. But what did alarm me was the, again, the sort of matter of factness of it all. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that is it's this daily ritual to check the polls and, you know, that he, you know, dug up the, the dog's skull and, and, you know, has these shamanistic. The yeah. yeah. Like that part of it to me um, in its apparent, like, frankness no pun intended yeah um and in how he just sort of goes about his uh his daily life with these really macabre um elements to it um that to me alarmed me more than anything and i I, the my motivator to continue to read this book was like i hope that i understand why yeah and i still don't we never really get like yeah we never really get closure on on why but it makes sense it's I, I think at the at the core of it, it's, you know, whether you... Well, we have two things, I think, that are big elements that kind of lead us here. Trauma and mm-hmm. isolation, right? right? They're two things that weigh heavily on human psyche and that weigh heavily on decision-making and on sort of your perception of your life and your perception of kind of the world around you and, mm-hmm. and what you can control of it, right? So... You know, at the heart of it, yeah, I, you know, we do kind of have an understanding. It's not an exact understanding how we got from point A to point B, but we have an understanding of the processes that are necessary to get us from point A to point B. Right. Which are isolation and trauma. But Frank also, interestingly, sort of has a code around animals, right? Yeah. Is, you know, he's he's really angry at Eric for burning the dog, right? And and buries it even after, uh, after he catches up with it. Um, and... So that sort of like false morality, um, I found to, to also be kind of strange. Yeah. And I, and I just, I kept wondering throughout the entire thing, like, how did this all start? Why, you know, why did, well, when. How do you go from not doing something like that to then going up and setting your sentry poles? Yeah. Like, well, yeah, we, we never, we never sort of get that, right? Like, you know, he, we don't know at what point that all started. It didn't sound like that was going on in his childhood, but he murdered three kids when he was, you know, 10 or younger. Yeah. Right. Um, 
And that at some point thereafter, we're left to assume that these other sort of rituals with small animals, you know, started happening. And um, that to me, I found I found kind of strange and I didn't really know what to make of of that, you know, of that ritual. And then the moral code that he has sort of against Eric's brand of of the same the same sort of thing. Yeah. And maybe it was it was the difference in that he didn't seem to make uh, animals suffer other than like. Well, that's not true because he had the part about tying the birds together yeah. and, you know, the wasps. But I, I never feel bad for insects. But wow. um, I don't I don't care about insects. Yeah. Um, we're too far removed from them biologically. At uh, least with mammals, you go, oh, they have a little baby right there and I can do this and they eat. Unless food. they taste good. And then. Yeah, then that's rough. Then, yeah. Then my my morals around mammals get, <sighs> gets questionable. Yeah, man. That's tough. Cows are delicious. and. Yeah, so is mutton. Mutton's pretty good too. Mutton is is really good. I was gonna say chicken, but they're not mammals. They're uh, birds, nope. which according to you don't count because you don't even you hate birds. I do hate birds. I question if they're even real. I don't think birds are real. You heard it here. What is <laughs> what does that even mean? We're trying to so you know just an homage to another podcast that came out last week. The uh, do you, have you heard any of the like Alex Jones and Joe Rogan podcast part two? I, I've I've heard about people. Being it's amazing. Into it. I it's amazing. We to need it. to we need to just have one of those days. But we're getting super off okay. topic here. Before we do you have do you have anything else? I have two more things that I want to talk about. Yeah, talk about them. I'm I'm just I'm just shooting from the hip. You're just shooting from the hip. Okay. One, we didn't talk about the actual namesake of the book, the Wasp Factory. Yes. I mean, we we talk a little bit about kind of the rituals and like you know how he has sort of. Uh, a token from each of his murders and mm-hmm. he has the the skull of the dog and then this whole setup with the wasp factory yeah like that to me just i guess when you come to sort of a decision making process that that seemed i don't know it seemed odd it seemed out of place to have this kind of like separate random entity for that or, or maybe i just was not in the mindset for that maybe maybe it was in place i don't know how did you feel about like the actual factory itself it it sort of it sort of seemed like an arbitrary addition to to everything that was going on. Yeah. Um, you know, the the thing about the wasp factory that I that I felt was sort of illuminating was the amount of effort that went into the different like, you know, sections. Yeah. And, you know, obviously it was, you know, very very well crafted and orchestrated. Um, but, you know, I, I sort of sort of wondered like why you know that was even a thing and it didn't really seem to like motivate frank so much i mean it, it sort of like gave him insight and you could you could argue you know you know he's he had the the visions of fire and all that kind of stuff yeah um after after we get the scene um with that and then the skull that that followed it but um i think maybe more than anything it was just sort of an image to sort of highlight the the fact that you know Frank doesn't have any sort of like free choice over you know some of the things that are happening to seemingly him. yeah yeah and but I don't know I I really honestly couldn't make heads or tails of it and I I just I wanted it to feel like it was more than it was in this book yeah um what, what because we you? don't really I mean yeah we don't really get it as like a constant presence throughout like yeah. we get it towards the end 
yeah, it, it did feel a little odd. It just kind of felt like it was this, like we've already hyped up these, these rituals throughout the process of telling the story that these rituals that he goes through and this process is by right. how he comes to these decisions and stuff like that. And at the end or, or closer to the end is when we actually get sort of the injection of the wasp, the wasp factory proper. Like this book does a lot of building up early and then we kind of get the payoffs for those later at the end. And, yeah. and we finally get the wasp factory and it's, yeah, it just feels a little bit not out of place because we're kind of, you know, nothing feels out of place in Frank's character when it comes right. to sort of like weird ritualistic stuff like this. But it feels out of place in a sense of it was there to sort of not even from a means of a story, but if if I'm like creating a story and I'm and I'm building up this world and I'm building up this character and then it's like I want to create this, I want to tie everything together. Right. Like all of these, all of these little rituals, all of these little nuances, all of these little quirks. I don't know if like yeah. murdering or, you know, having weird animal sacrifices or, you know, just building things on the island and stuff for quirks, but having some sort of like center point for all of this to sort of have its kind of connection, right? Like that's yeah. what it seems like to me. Like the factory was there to sort of connect a lot of these things with throughout his decision making process. And I get it. I get it from a logistical standpoint, but again, yeah, it just kind of felt like, meh, it, it wasn't very impactful to like the actual enjoyment or the actual like consumption of the story. You know, the, the, the one thing I was just thinking about is, as you were talking is that it's, it's interesting that sort of death motivates um, Frank throughout the book you know, and and you know whether it's keeping his his polls up to date or sort of ruminating on on the murders, um, all of that kind of stuff. I, I wonder also if the wasp factory isn't sort of uh, a, a metaphor for you know everything that that he has gone through. You know, ostensibly his his dad sort of murdered him by giving him you know hormones. Yeah. Um, and you know he he references the the random deaths of his uh of his previous family members the uh the guy that would catch on fire and then went into the the 50 gallon barrel to put himself out am i remembering that correctly and i just remember the one i just remember the one uh that it was like oh yeah in south africa this the black guy threw himself out of like the 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 top story on the building at the police station it was yeah. like i was like i was like wait what i was like Oh, it's it's a little tongue in cheek because it's apartheid South Africa. Yeah, jeez. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I feel like I stretch to to try to relate the actual wasp factory to to anything in this book, and you know, again, other than just sort of illuminating his his depravity and and sort of underlying you know animal cruelty and all that kind of stuff. I just sort of failed to see the the point, especially its relation to you know the the title of the book itself. Yeah, um, I, that was another thing too. Is yeah, I was expecting a little bit more of uh, its importance throughout the course of the story because it's the namesake of the book. But also something else I just thought about: their dad doesn't really take like a protectorate role. 
um, yeah. right in 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 any of this. He doesn't he doesn't guide any of his children. He doesn't save Paul. He doesn't he doesn't seem to help Eric. He is seemingly completely oblivious to what Frank has going on, or doesn't care that he's building fucking bombs and blowing shit up all the time. And you know ha- has some very obvious like murderous tendencies that you know this day and age you know. We know psychopathic, as, as people, sociopathic. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we know as tendencies. people if somebody's you know somebody's killing small animals and and enjoying it that they might go shoot up a school someday. I mean, how many times have we heard that story on the news? Once one of these school shootings happen, that you know neighbors come out and say, "Oh yeah, he, he used to you know, violent you know, torture cats past, or you know yeah. whatever it is." Right? Sure. So like. In in a sense, like the house itself is the wasp factory, and and Frank's parent, or Frank's dad, well, and mom, I guess, just by not being yeah. there, sort of release them into this into this terrible environment that they just sort of go through, um, you know, on on their own guidance, and end up, you know, in the loony bin, murdering, you know, dogs, or you know, being stuck on an island as, uh, as a man forced hormones. Uh, and yeah, so maybe that's the maybe that's the thing. There you go, Ryan. Yeah. A plus on your thesis, young man. Thank you for creative writing. I on thought of that the subject. I of thought of that the wasp factory on the fly. Yeah, I'm telling you, man. Higher education, man. That's uh, that's interesting. Um, one last thing, yes, that I want to get to because again, from this book standpoint, as far as like the traditional things that lock me into a story, there's a little bit of in here, but not terribly too much, but man, I can't, I can't, uh, compliment Banks's writing style enough. Oh yeah. In this book in Espadere street, it's, it's one of those things. It's, it's easily digestible. It, it's very, I don't know. It's very, it, it, it puts images in your brain very easily. It's very easy to kind of just take in and enjoy and I know that we don't talk. We typically don't talk about style yeah. choices yep. or or narrative choices unless they're bad, right? Yep. Like yep. that's typically that's only when we highlight it, and that's a good thing because typically you don't really see it. it. You just kind of it's just there in the back of your mind as you're as you're taking it in. You don't really you know spend a lot of time dwelling on like, well, why did he choose to do this and why did mm-hmm. he choose to do that? Mm-hmm. So stylistically, how did you feel about the book? I think I think you you nailed it. I think that. You see the the science fiction like leanings in this, because yeah. because again, like when when you're writing a galaxy or whatever into existence, you have to be extremely detailed in you know what it is that that you're building because people don't have any sort of um, preconceived notion of of you know what whatever's going on. If if you just say like something is in you know, New York City in, uh, you know, the 1930s, you have an immediate image of, yeah. of what that means. You don't have right? to build that world. Um, so the way that I would describe Banks' writing style in, in that regard and in Espadere Street, but especially this one, is, is tactile. You see a lot of, like, you know, this, this felt a certain way. I, you know, clenched my fists. Uh, uh, a lot of like, you know, just sort of, uh, body awareness, like those, those sort of things. And yeah, I, I think that, which makes especially more sense in the context of this book when we talk about sort of the, I don't know, when we talk about the climax again. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that, that I, I love, I love Banks writing style in that regard because it doesn't leave much to the imagination, but the things that it does 
are the bigger concepts like what happens after like why did why is is frank the way that he is in in the first yeah. place so yeah I, I i think that uh i think that he does he, he does a lot of stuff that is really great and even the dialogue you know i i think is almost like Hemingway-esque like Hemingway is, is always known for for you know his brevity and uh and specificity um and one other thing that that Hemingway does really well is is that he doesn't use dialogue often yeah um and neither does does Banks really but what what he says especially like the father's reaction to a lot of stuff where he's just sort of like huh yeah that says so much about the situation that you you know just you could say uh, you know, father said, huh, and, you know, turn back to Stu, or, you know, you could extrapolate, like, you know, I, my father wasn't looking me in the eye, and, you know, this is just another time that he was not really paying attention to me, but Humph says it all. Yeah. And, you know, Banks just does that almost, like, poetic um, sort of assessment of of situations and language, and, yeah, I, th- I think he's, he's a brilliant writer in that regard. Um, should we get to our ratings? Let's do it. You want to go or you want me to go? I'll go go for it uh i'm gonna stick this on on my middle shelf cool. I, th- I think just because of the strangeness of this book um i don't I, I don't think that it it like rises to the occasion that like you know I'm, I'm gonna somebody's gonna ask me like what is what is a great book for this type of thing or uh, this style of writing or whatever, and I'm gonna immediately jump to this. Yeah, it's something I definitely want on my shelf uh, because you know somebody comes to me and says, uh, you know, I'm thinking about something uh, just kind of out of the norm. I think there you, you know, go. This yeah. and there, and there are definitely a few a few elements. There's a, there's a niche theme in here that I think you know is uh, is is certainly worthy. Um, so yeah, I think I think solid middle shelf. I'd even consider flirting with top shelf. Uh, if maybe if I had a second read and, and had the, the gender identity stuff in the back of my mind, I could see it bumping it up. Yeah, I think this could be an interesting reread, which is why I'm going to be keeping it. Um, it's going to be on the bottom shelf for me. Okay. Uh, still, still worthy of a keep. I really like the author. The story was okay. Um, it's not something that I'm going to be thinking a lot about down the road, uh, you know, there's not a ton of people that I would recommend this to, but in the same way that you said, kind of, if there's a niche that someone kind of wants to fill by reading, or if there's just a niche reader that just kind of wants to get into weird stuff like this, then, yeah, then absolutely this would be up there. But uh, yeah, so it's bottom shelf, kind of leaning a little bit closer to middle shelf, but okay, yeah. so fair enough. And we get a point of differentiation finally. We do get a point of differentiation. It's been a couple episodes. It has. It's been like. Three months, yeah, I think, I since say. we've been on a since we've been on a different spot here. So, speaking of points of differentiation, yes, let's talk about our next book. We we switched things up yes. since the last time we talked. I I think uh, we had said we were going to do um, your friend Christina's poetry collection, right? Uh, but I think we're going to line that up when we actually talk to her about it, and that's going to be more conducive when you're heading out yeah. for your conference. So yep. we're going to go ahead and bump my book up. So I get two in a row. Yes, you <laughs> do. Uh, at some point in the future, you'll probably get. Two in a row to uh, to bring us back down, but yeah. Speaking of points of differentiation, we're 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 double dipping again here on another repeat author, and this was I think the one book that we were so far on, or yes, at least the author. Was. 
Plot Against America by Philip Roth. Obviously, previously, I think you were top shelf. I was donate. Yes. So yep. we were as far apart on that book as possible. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to be a little bit closer on this one. So we're going to be reading Everyman by Philip Roth. Uh, short book. I'm excited. This maybe will take you know a couple hours top to read, but uh, a lot of sort of dealing with loss, middle age, you know, feelings, thoughts, emotions, stuff like that. So there might be some interesting personal resonance from this book with either of us. You know, okay. both. Young men, soon to be within middle age. We're flirting with middle age. We're getting close. We're getting pretty damn close to middle age. And then, uh, then afterwards, then afterwards, we're we're gonna have our um, our discussion over uh, Christina Thatcher's "More Than You Were," um, and she is going to be on with us. It's gonna be a little bit like a less uh, produced episode because I'm gonna be doing it remotely. Jacob's gonna be on Skype. Um, so it's gonna sound a little bit different, but uh, we're gonna have Christina on the podcast talking about uh, her collection. Uh, she's got another uh, couple things in the works too um, that I'm hoping we can get her to talk about. And you know, generally, uh, so she's she's a professor at uh, Cardiff Met, and uh, I want her to to kind of you know we haven't done a poetry collection, so Absolutely. I want to I touch on. Um, just some sort of uh, generic sort of poetry discussion with her too. Well, and you have a passion. This is what, I mean, you're a published you're a published poet. And sure. I mean, I feel like at the heart of it. Oh, I mean, don't don't be bad for you. <laughs> you're published somewhere. Uh, but uh, no, at the heart of it, I feel like you know when it comes to your choice style of writing, like poetry, kind of has a special place for you. So yeah, I think this will be a nice and interesting avenue to get in i guess from even just your own sort of personal affection towards the style of writing absolutely and i know christina is is looking forward to it and uh i think i think it's gonna be a really cool episode i'm hoping that it kind of launches something that we can do periodically where you know we really just read you know up and coming writers that you know we we tend to go with um you know some big names or you know well known up and coming writers um not that christina is not well known in her own right um you know but uh, you know, some people who, you know, probably aren't just in the mainstream, you know, sure. uh, you know, thought. Um, so, uh, I'm hoping that that's a, it's a start of, of something cool. So, uh, again, the, uh, the episode on, uh, March 25th is going to be Philip Roth, every man, the episode that will release on the 8th of April will be Christina Thatcher's interview and discussion over her collection more than you were. Uh, Thank you for listening, and until next time.